The sermon that you are about to hear is illegal in Canada, and it probably won't be legal for us here very much longer. And so as was said, to show solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Canada, we are taking a break from 1 Samuel for today and only for today to join with churches across North America to together take our stand in affirming what Scripture teaches us about God's will for human sexuality. Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19? Matthew chapter 19. We will begin at the beginning of the chapter, Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. And I would ask you to follow along through, at first, the first three verses with me. These are the very words of God. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Let us stop there. It was the custom of the Pharisees to try to stump Jesus with difficult questions, theological, political, social, whatever. And in Matthew 19, they asked Jesus a question about divorce. And in typical Jesus fashion, the Lord gives a much broader answer than the question actually demanded. As we will see, Jesus appeals to Genesis 1 and 2 and deduces from the creation account not just a view of divorce, but a comprehensive view of what God intends for human sexuality. So let's see Jesus' answer, this very broad answer to the narrow question of divorce. Look at verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Let's stop there. First, the text says that Jesus sees in Genesis that God made Adam and Eve male and female. So this reveals to us Jesus' mind about our current transgender movement. If Jesus were alive in America today, he would quickly be branded as transphobic. Because when Jesus reads Genesis, he recognized that God created two sexes. There is no such thing in Jesus' mind as a gender spectrum. Gender and sex are binaries. There are only two. That's how God made us. And if you read Genesis, those two sexes are clearly established on the basis of biological realities. Adam did not pick whether he was the woman or the man. Your body reveals your gender to you. If you want to know your gender, look at your body. You are either male or female, and you didn't get to pick. God picked it for you. God gave you your sex. God gives you your gender. To rebel against your biology is to rebel against God. But Jesus deduces more from the creation account. He also deduces that God's standard for human sexuality is both heterosexual and monogamous. It is both for heterosexuals and for monogamy. Look at verse 5. 
And he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God created the man and the woman to come together. Men become one flesh with women, and vice versa. God did not intend for men to become one flesh with men and women to become one flesh with women. You've sometimes maybe have heard that old expression, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Now, I don't particularly recommend using that expression in dialogue with people because I think it tends to trivialize and mock what should be a very serious conversation. But believe it or not, the, the, the core of that little slogan is actually quite profound. It, it is actually getting at exactly what Jesus' mindset is. Jesus is looking at what God did in Genesis. How did God create us? And he deduced that. That means that reveals to us God's intention for all of mankind. And God did not create Adam and Steve. He created a man and a woman, and they came together, the man and the woman. This does reflect how Jesus thinks. This means that homosexuality is outside the boundaries of God's standard. By the way, this is also reflected in Genesis and in verse 5 here, when it tells us that when a man and a woman come together, who do they leave? They have to leave someone in order to come together. And who are they leaving? A father and a mother. A father and a mother. Jesus does not believe any child should have two dads. Jesus does not believe any child should have two moms. You don't leave your fathers. You don't leave your mothers. You leave your mom and your dad. Jesus' standard, based on Genesis, is that one man clings to one woman, produces offspring, and that offspring leaves their one man and one woman parents and start their own one man and one woman parents. But not only is the biological sex important to Jesus, the numbers, the numerical numbers, are obviously important to him as well. Because he reminds us at the end of verse 5 that two become one. He says this again, he, he reiterates this in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with us. They are, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. How many wives did God give Adam? How many wives did Adam cling to? How many fathers did Adam, or not Adam, I guess, but how many fathers is everyone supposed to leave? How many mothers do we leave? Clearly, God's standard for human sexuality is one man becoming one flesh with one woman. Three or more do not become one. Two become one. God did not give Adam a harem. Polygamy... When one person desires to marry uh, multiple people at the same time is sin. Polygamy is sin. And this is why, by the way, to jump back into our sermon series for a moment, this is why we should have been so sad last week. When we saw David intentionally choosing to enter into a polygamous relationship, that was sin. David has been a beacon of righteousness throughout most of 1 Samuel. But I love 1 Samuel 25 because it reminded us of how very fallible David is. David entered into a broken marital union, not a healthy one. It was sin. 
And here's what we can't do. We can't act like, well, that was, that was then, this is now. David, you know, David was ignorant, but we know better now. David knew better. First and foremost, David, we have direct commandment from the law of Moses that the king of Israel is not allowed to have more than one wife. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says that the king of Israel shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So he not only had a direct commandment from God, but what we see in Matthew 19 is he didn't even need Deuteronomy. All he needed was Genesis 1 and 2. That's what Jesus appeals to. And by the way, he condemns them for not knowing this. Jesus doesn't think he's giving some secret and hidden wisdom here. He says, have you not read? Don't you have Genesis? It's clear. David knew better. He had the law of Moses. This was sin. God did not make men and women to have multiple partners at the same time. One man is called to cling to one woman, each having both only one father and one mother. But believe it or not, there is far more. We could, we could continue to elaborate all of the different things that we learn from Jesus and from Genesis here. Because remember, Genesis is, or forgive me, Matthew 19, what's the context of Matthew 19? It's ultimately a context of what? Marriage and divorce. And then Jesus appeals to Genesis. So what does that tell us about what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2? That union, that coming together is a marital union. It's a, in a marriage context. Men leave the rule of their parents' marriage to create their own marital rule. For Jesus, all sexual encounters outside of the marriage covenant are also outside of God's standards. All non-marital sexual behavior is sinful. And that is, by the way, the definition of that old fancy word called fornication. Fornication is sinful, and fornication is when sexual activity takes place outside of a marriage contract. No man should ever become one flesh with his girlfriend or a stranger. He ought to become one flesh with his wife. Women become one flesh with their husbands. That is God's standard. So how could we summarize Jesus' view of sexuality? Jesus believes human sexuality is to be monogamous, heterosexual activity between biological men and biological women who are married to each other forever. That's Jesus' standard. Anything outside of that is not what God intends. Fornication, polygamy, bestiality, homosexuality, transgenderism, these are all perversions of God's intention for mankind. God intended sexuality to take place within the lifelong marital union of one biological man and one biological woman. I'm tempted to end the sermon there, but there's an important question that remains for us. If God's design for human sexuality is based on Genesis, scriptural revelation, then why would we come down so hard on people who behave these ways but maybe don't have a Bible? Why would we hold people accountable to know this if they've never read a Bible or never gone to church and done a Bible study? What if they have a Bible but they just don't believe it? They don't think Genesis 1 and 2 are true. Why would we come down so hard on them, right? Jesus was talking to Jews who already affirmed Genesis 1 and 2. It was already a standard for them. He was merely appealing to an authority that they had. But lots of people don't have Genesis 1 and 2. 
Are they free to do whatever they want? Are they off the hook? Can they plead ignorance? Should we leave them alone? The Bible actually addresses this as well. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans chapter 1. We are only going to focus on two verses in Romans 1, but I think it's important to get a larger context. So we are going to read quite a lengthy segment because the context really matters, which I guess is always the case. We're going to read verses 18 through 32 together. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What a text. Jesus pointed his Jewish audience to Scripture to learn basic truths about sexuality. But when Paul, who is in this chapter primarily addressing Gentiles, though this would include all men, Jew and Gentile, he is primarily focused on Gentiles who were not part of the covenant, who did not receive the law, who never received this kind of amazing revelation like Moses and, and all of Abraham's descendants did. He is addressing specifically Gentiles who have never read Genesis 1 and 2, many of them. Yet, is, Paul is explicitly clear that they still know better. They are to be held accountable for their sexual sins. How do they know? Without Genesis 1 and 2, without Matthew 19, how do they know? Paul says everyone knows through creation. 
God has made it abundantly clear. He has shown it to us with so much clarity that no one has any legitimate excuse in the things that have been made. Christians refer to this concept as natural theology. This is called natural theology. God has revealed some of who he is and much of what he requires through the created order. He speaks through nature. And not just physical stuff, but even the metaphysical components of reality. So not just biology, but all of the created order reveals and proclaims the glory of God. Natural theology is what we learn of God through the created order apart from what we call special revelation, which is things like scripture or hearing God's voice or prophets. That's what we refer to as special revelation. But Paul here appeals to what we call general revelation, the revelation of God and his standards made abundantly clear through the created order. You don't need a Bible to know these things. As a matter of fact, we could clump what Paul says, every man knows through creation into four groups. We know the one true God exists. We know we ought to give thanks to him. And what I love is the very last verse that we read, we know his righteous decree, which is essentially a moral law. We know his moral law, and we know that anyone who breaks this law deserves judgment. You don't need a Bible to know these things. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, everything I just mentioned, everyone knows everything I just mentioned is wrong, and if you do them, you deserve to die. Everyone knows that, and they don't need a Bible to know that. But not only do these people suppress that knowledge and practice them, but then like Bill C4, they give hearty approval to everyone who wants to join in their rebellion. We know these things in our natural state, but we suppress the truth that we have abundantly clear to us and we pursue other things because of our sin. So no, the Canadian legislators do not have an excuse. I don't care what they think of the Bible. I don't care if they've ever read a Bible in their life. They are without excuse. They know God's righteous decree that those who do these things deserve to die. They know that. And notice the emphasis that Paul puts in here of the result of this suppression, of this rebellion. What are some of the places that the human condition will go when we are adamant to disobey the God we know exists? Where might that lead? Well, Paul emphasizes it leads to many things, all manner of unrighteousness, disobedience to parents, deceit, maliciousness, gossips. But Paul spends a whole chapter emphasizing gross, unnatural behavior to highlight his point. You want to know how bad this rebellion is? You will actually fight against reality. And what does that look like? Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Unlike many Christians today, Paul minces no words 
when talking about homosexuality. Without apology, he describes it with words like dishonorable, shameful, and he even in the context here is saying it is the end process of incredible rebellion against God. Even in a passage where Paul lists many other sins that rebelling against God leads to, none of them get quite the attention that homosexuality gets. It is the highlight of his argument. And in this, we see why Paul does not believe someone needs to read Genesis 1 and 2 to know that homosexuality is wrong. This is something God has made abundantly clear in nature. That is why Paul twice uses these key terms that the things that homosexuals are doing are what? Contrary to scripture? No, that's not what he says. Contrary to nature. He calls it unnatural. In other words, one does not need to be a professional biologist or a professional pastor to see how basic heterosexuality is to all life on earth. There are two sexes whose parts literally fit together and then that is capable of reproduction. This is partly how God has revealed his standard of sexuality to us in nature. To borrow the language of the world, those who promote things like transgenderism and homosexuality are bigots guilty of a severe case of science phobia. They are science phobes. Because these things are so patently obvious in the natural world that men are men, women are women. How more basic could that be? That men fit together with women and are able to reproduce and it doesn't work the other way around. How more basic can that be? We're talking stuff that's on the level of babies and children and toddlers. This is basic biology and God has revealed his standards in biology. You want to go anywhere else? It's unnatural and it won't work. And by the way, the fact that this doesn't work, that our bodies were not designed for this behavior, can be further seen not just in a biological study, but in recording the data of the consequences coming upon those who have actually engaged in it. We are beginning to document with an incredible detail the consequences of our rage against nature. In Dr. Michael Brown's massive book, A Queer Thing Happened to America, he has a chapter dedicated to the scientific research surrounding homosexuality. In his book, he has an incredible reservoir of studies and data on the harmful effects of homosexual behavior. Gathering credible studies from the CDC, from NARTH, the National Association of Research and Therapy of Homosexuality, and other credentialed researchers, Brown is able to confirm a number of startling facts. All of these facts, by the way, remember, are in the context of gays and bisexuals making up 5% of the United States population. These people make up 5% of our population, and yet they dominate all STD and mental health statistics or mental illness statistics. 65% of all new syphilis cases are in homosexuals. 
gay men are 46 times more likely to get syphilis than straight men and 71 times more likely to get it than straight women. Half of all HIV cases are homosexuals and homosexuals are 50 times more likely to get AIDS from their HIV than heterosexuals. 50 times. HIV positive gay men are 90 times more likely to contract colon cancer than the general population. Gays are significantly more likely to have mental health issues like personality disorders, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, and paranoia. Adult bisexual women are 24 times more likely to engage in self-harm as a coping mechanism. One-third of gay men admit to substance abuse. 40% of gay youths report suicidal thoughts and tendencies. Bisexual men are seven times more likely to be suicidal, and gay men are four times more likely than the general population. Bisexual women are six times more likely to be suicidal, and lesbians are four times more likely than the general population. Now, I do understand that correlation doesn't prove causation, but let it be known that the book also provides extensive research that you cannot blame these numbers on things like homophobic behaviors from the outside world or sexual abuse when they were children. The numbers don't support that theory. The more likely way to understand these statistics is to see them as a reminder that to engage in that which is unnatural is also unsafe. Homosexuality is not just sinful, it's dangerous. And by the way, I would encourage you to do your own research on transgenderism. And you will find that the statistics do not bear well for that lifestyle either. There are consequences to rebelling against God's created order. No matter how much I think I can fly, if I jump off a building and flap my wings, I'm going to fall and I'm going to die. Reality is a cold, rigid teacher like that. Congress can pass laws all day long decreeing that water must flow uphill, that warm air must sink, but reality will never comply. Recently, I took Matthew, I took my son outside. I wanted him to get sunlight on his face. I wanted him to feel the dirt and the earth beneath him now that he's touching things and learning things. And I put a rock in his hand and I just loved watching him stare at this rock and squeeze it and touch it and learn it. But as all six-month-old children are prone to do, he was trying to do something else with that rock over and over and over again. He was trying to eat it. And I kept swatting his hand away. I would not let my son eat that rock. Why? Is it because I'm a rock-phobe? Am I rock-phobic? I'm just bigoted against rocks. I hate rocks. I don't let my son eat that because it's unnatural. And because it's unnatural... It's dangerous. When children try to eat rocks, they quickly discover that God did not design your jaw to do that. It won't work. You could seriously damage your jaw. Children who have teeth, they try to eat a rock. Their teeth were not designed for that. Their teeth are going to crack and break. And it's going to be very painful and bloody and a mess. And don't think you can get around it by just swallowing the rock. Because then you choke to death. 
And even if you manage to get all through that, you get all past that, the rock finally gets into your stomach and you have severe stomach issues because your body was not designed to take nutrients from rocks, to break rocks down. I don't let my son eat rocks because it's unnatural and unsafe. And that is how God reveals to me this is sinful. And that is why Jesus tells us he uses his own analogy. And if a good father, if someone asks for bread, does he give him a stone? Because we all inherently know in the things that have been made, our children were not designed to eat rocks. That is God speaking to you. To to feed your children rocks is to rebel against God. They were not designed for that. And there are consequences to doing that which we were not designed to do. Homosexuality and transgenderism are not just wrong, they're dangerous. And this is why I would caution you from trying to stifle Christians from having this conversation. Homosexuals and transgenders don't have time for us to turn our attention away. They're dying. They're dying. Their lives are being destroyed along with their souls. And it is an incredible cruelty to pretend like there are no sins that don't devastate people in more peculiar and extreme ways than other. That is cruel to pretend that. It's not true. By the way, I actually think that's probably what Paul means at the end of verse 27 when he talks about the men who engage in this receive the due penalty of the error. Take this with a grain of salt because I am in the minority of interpreters on this. But what I think what Paul is saying is that these are the, some sins you do and there's no natural consequences. God has to judge you from outside. There are some sins that you do that the actual act itself will judge you. Right? If I want to put my hand on a hot stove, God doesn't need to judge me. That is my own judgment. You receive the due penalty of your error. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. When men and women give up natural relations and are consumed with dishonorable, unnatural relations, the consequences of that behavior will be punishment itself. It's dangerous and it's destructive and that's why we must speak out. But the fact remains that there will always be those of us, those who want us not to talk like I am talking right now. And that makes sense among the pagans. But it's sad to see how many Christians do not like us speaking out like this. And no, I'm not talking about progressive Christians who are LGBTQ plus affirming. They're with, I, I group them in with the pagans. I'm talking about actual Christians who know homosexuality is wrong. They know transgenderism is wrong. Yet they still get clammy when we talk about these issues. In my experience, whenever I begin to discuss these issues among Christians in any setting... Christians are quick to pump the brakes, cautioning me, you know, we really shouldn't be singling out some sins over others. They think this conversation is inappropriate unless I'm crystal clear over and over ad nauseum that there are lots of sins that are bad. In fact, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention had the audacity to do this very thing when preaching through Romans 1. In that sermon, he spent almost his entire time cautioning us from being too harsh on homosexuality, telling us that, quote, the Bible whispers about sexual sins, but it shouts about sins like materialism and religious pride. Not only is that a lie, but this passive approach 
promotes a false narrative. It's a lie in two ways. It's a lie about the Bible, but it's a lie about our social standing. Why do I say that? Because this false narrative is assuming that those of us who regularly speak out against sexual sins, that we're the bullies. It pretends like we're the ones who just arbitrarily picked homosexuality out because we have some personal distaste for it. But this is not the case. We did not pick this fight. The world did. We have been provoked. This is not a fight the church started, though it is a fight the church intends to finish. And to win any battle, you cannot be afraid to send reinforcements where the enemy is hitting you the hardest. To treat all sins equally is a losing strategy. We will die if we continue to silence Christians because they aren't talking about other sins enough. The sexual revolution is by no means our only enemy, but it is our most aggressive and prevalent one. We focus on these issues disproportionately because the world is attacking this part of our faith disproportionately. Do you disagree? Let me ask you then this. Will my children or my grandchildren ever be locked up in this country for hate crimes because they said religious hypocrisy was wrong? Is that ever going to get your child thrown in prison? Will saying that materialism is bad ever get your child a ticket or thrown in prison for some newly invented phobia? Our children are going to go to prison for their beliefs about homosexuality and transgenderism. Not greed. Canadian pastors are already right now on the precipice of prison. Not because they're against greed. But because they're against sexual perversions. Our rhetoric is self-defense. Our culture picked this fight. The world is the bully. But let me clarify one thing before we end, though. I am personally not claiming to, in no way, shape, or form, be in the business of bullying. I freely admit I do intend to pick a fight. This sermon is intended to bully people. But let me clarify who specifically. This sermon is adamantly not an attack on homosexuals or transgendered people. If any homosexual or transgendered person ever hears the words of my voice in this sermon, or if any of you in this room have gay or transgendered friends and family members, I hope you all hear, yes, the unfiltered truth of God, but equally important, I hope you hear compassion and love. This church loves our gay and transgendered neighbors. And we are sorry that they sometimes are wounded by the shrapnel of cultural warfare that other people have forced our hands to fight. Our gay and transgender neighbors are made in God's image. We love them and we beg them to never be intimidated by us or our church. But for any and all, whether gay or straight, transgendered or cisgendered. Anyone who is seeking to force your ideas and practices on us, 
I am here to attack them with this sermon. I am here to attack you if you are someone who's seeking to persecute us. I am picking a fight with you. I am trying to offend you. I am trying to shame you because your actions are shameful. Any person who seeks to force these perversions onto our lips or to force our children to affirm what is dishonorable and unnatural behavior, even using legislative force to do it, you should be ashamed. I hope my words have heaped shame upon you. You are science-phobic, closed-minded, bigoted fundamentalists denying what you know to be true and rebelling against the God you know exists. Shame on you. Now, while our culture has forced us to emphasize these sins more than others, it will never push us to commit the heresy of treating these sins as if they are so bad they cannot be forgiven. So let us end with the gospel, shall we? Not the gospel for homosexuals, not the gospel for transgenders, the gospel for all us sinners. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul mentions a list of sins that keep people from heaven. And among them are many sexual sins. Fornication, adultery, heterosexual sins like fornication and adultery. And yes, he does mention homosexuality. People who embrace any of the lifestyles of the sins we just misted, listed are not saved. But there is hope of salvation. Why? Because verse 11 teaches us of the Holy Spirit's great conversion therapy. Verse 11 tells us that in Paul's own churches, there were people who practiced those things he just listed. Such were some of you. They no longer practice them. They've been renewed. They've been changed. They've been converted. Additionally, the text goes out of its way to say not just that they were sanctified because they were changed and are being made new, but they were justified. This means that their sins were forgiven. They've been transformed and they've been forgiven. And this, both of these concepts are together summed up in this metaphor of being washed. This communicates purification. That through Christ, in Christ, you are clean and you are new. Every true Christian on the face of the earth is a person who has had their sins forgiven and are being made each day more into the image of Christ Jesus. And this is the hope for all sinners of every kind all who place their faith in Jesus Christ 
Repenting of their sins will be forgiven. And by grace through faith, you will receive the transformation of the Holy Spirit. And you will one day be resurrected and you will, by faith in Jesus, inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> 